Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the blessing of the music that we've heard this morning. We thank you for the reminder that we are to find our peace in you, Lord. A world full of regrets, Lord, may we seek you for all our peace and understanding. We open your word now. I pray that you'll bless us, that you'll guide us in our thoughts. In your name we pray. Amen. There are some that have asked me, am I preaching a new sermon based on the happenings of this week after what I preached last week? And for those of you that were here, my response is no, just go back and listen to last week's sermon. And uh, that still applies. No matter what happened in our country today, as we talked about, no matter what we vote, no matter what the outcome of that vote is, the message still applies that we are to seek God, that we are to pray for all of our leaders, and that we are to continue with the mission that God has set before us to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that's what we plan to do, no matter who is in charge. We know that God is king of kings and lord of lords. But I know that it has been a stressful week. It's been a tense week. And even this morning as I came to church, it felt like there was still tension even around here. So I just want to invite every single one of us in this moment just to take a deep breath. He's king of kings and lord of lords. It's going to be okay. We're going to move away from politics this week. And if you weren't here and you are struggling with that, I would invite you to go online and listen to the message. And to those who are watching at home, if you didn't watch last week, I encourage you to uh, get online and watch last week's message. Uh, There must be some concern about everything because that message was viewed over 10,000 times. So, so obviously, thank you to those of you that shared it, and, uh, and obviously people, it is something on people's minds, and I know it's on our minds, but we, we want to move today and we talk about some other aspects of things, of this journey that we are on in this world. There are many that struggle with walking closely to God, not because they don't want to walk with God, but because they have this view of God, this picture of God that, that, that he does not really want to walk with them. They feel this way, many people feel this way because of their own decisions in their life, because of their, their own regrets. And they look at their lives and they look at their regrets and they, they begin to question, can, can a God of the universe, can an almighty God really want to work with me? Can an almighty God really want to walk with me? Regrets about decisions that they have made or maybe even regrets about decisions even that we are making in the here and now. We live in a society that is riddled with regrets and that is not a direct reference to any elections recently. In Western societies especially there is a a greater level of regret, studies show. It's because I believe that we are, because we are such individualistic uh, uh, in the Western culture, we are so individualistic minded we maybe have less people to point the finger at for the decisions that are made. And so there's more often opportunity to blame ourselves for the wrongs or the, 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 the struggles in our lives. Probably every person in this room 
every single one of us, if we are above a certain age, has something that if I said, what is your biggest regret, something that would immediately come to mind, that would immediately enter your mind. For some, it may take longer for you to tell me what your favorite color was or your favorite food was than what your biggest regret in life is. Regrets are real, and regrets can be psychologically Damaging. Those that, that hold on to their regrets are, are more often to struggle with depression or other mental health issues. Those that work within uh, the medical field know as well that, that research reveals that, that regret can result in, in chronic stress. And this chronic stress can, can negatively affect hormonal and immune system functioning. Researchers say these negative effects can, can, can lead to simple things like more colds or or more headaches to much greater longer-term health problems. If you have a week full of regrets this week, maybe that's one of the reasons why you have that cold that you're battling. Research also know, shows that, that, that on the other hand, that having a positive attitude and keeping our regrets, the decisions of our life in proper perspective, can help eliminate a great majority of the negative impacts, both physically and mentally, of regret. So today I want to share with you a story that gives me hope uh, in spite of my past mistakes. I want to share with you a story that, that gives me hope because it shows me that, that I can still have purpose in this world and in this life in spite of the poor decisions that I've made, in spite of the regrets that I have. It shows me that God can still use me in spite of my past regrets or even maybe some regrets that are happening right here in the here and now. It shows me that God still wants to walk with me, still wants to hear from me in spite of those struggles. The story is probably familiar to, to a great many of you. If you grew up anywhere near a Christian context and, and uh, in a Christian setting, you probably are familiar with this story. It is the story of Queen Esther from the book of Esther. I invite you to open your Bibles with me there now. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use uh, the Wi-Fi, and you can follow along on your tablets or on your smartphones, or in the pew bot. There's a Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, and it's on page 561 in the pew Bible. The story of Esther. Now, the story of Esther, through the lens of our childhood storybooks or our Sabbath school or Sunday school lessons would not look like a story of regrets. In fact, the Bible uh, never indicates to us whether or not Esther ever really had any regrets about the decision. But when I read the book of Esther, when I read the story of Esther, not through my childhood lenses, but now as an adult, I see, I see a story that has many components that it would elicit much regret in one's life. And so now, as I read the story of Esther, I see not necessarily this, this perfect ideal, idyllic story, but rather I see a story of God's resounding and amazing grace. The story of Esther is almost always presented as, as, as a story of the great courage of a young queen. This queen that, 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 that possessed poise and, and dignity and was, was perfect in, it seems like, all her ways. And yes, it is a story of courage. There is definitely some courage there at the end of the book. But the real story to me of, of Esther is a story of a God 
of great grace who is ready to use any of us at a moment's notice if we are willing to let him step in and take charge. He is willing to save his people no matter our past or our current regrets. The book of Esther is interesting because it is by a simple reading of the book, the most secular book in all the Bible. The most secular book in all the Bible. There is, in the book of Esther, no use, no reference uh, to God's name at all. They do not use the name of God anywhere in the book of Esther. In fact, at the, back when they were setting the canon, there were some that felt like it should be left out of the canon due to its lack of the use of the name of God. The book as I said, seems to have some very secular components. There is a, a, a slight indication of God at the end when Mordecai, one of the relatives of Esther, speaks. And there is also a direct reference to fasting, which we know, of course, is a very religious and spiritual act. But this is, in many ways, seems to be a secular book. In fact, there seems to be, as you read through the book of Esther, a clear indication that Mordecai and the, the young lady that he is looking after, Esther, were in fact not that committed to their faith. They were not that committed to their faith. They were in fact living in opposition to their faith in many, many ways. The first indication of this comes in the book of Esther, chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 5. Esther, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai and Esther were part of a group known as the Diaspora, the group of Jews that chose not to return to Israel when the decree had been issued that the people of God could go back to the promised land, back to their homeland. The group of Jews that had not chosen to do as God had indicated was always his desire. It, it was always God's intention that, that his people would go back to the promised land. If you read in the book of Chronicles, if you read in, in, in the book of Ezra, if you read in Daniel and, and in Nehemiah and in the book of Jeremiah, we see over and over again that when God, when, when the people are, are taken into exile somewhere, God's desire and God's intent is always for them to return to the promised land, to return to the land that he, had, that he had set apart for them, the land that represented their connection to him. In that day and age, much more than it is now, where you lived represented who you were most faithful to. It was a, it was a sign of your, your loyalty and a symbol of the God that you were worshiping. But Mordecai and many others had become comfortable in the territory of Babylon. They'd chosen to, 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 to make Babylon their home. They didn't feel a need to go back to the promised land. I would see, though, that it is not stated that this would be one of their first regrets, especially as things begin to unfold in their life. 
God had a specific place for them, set apart for them, and yet they chose to stay in the place in which was most comfortable to them by maybe the world's standards. My dad speaks of one of his greatest regrets in life is when he moved us into a much larger house. My dad worked within our denominational system, and we didn't have tons of money, but there was a time when my mom was working a little bit more, and, and, and my dad was working in the university ranks, and, and the prices on houses were, were a little bit better than they had before, and so my dad decided, you know what, we have never owned a house as a family, we've lived in trailers, we've lived in small rentals, we've lived in apartments, this is our opportunity to get a nice home. And so my parents decided to invest in this much larger home. The home was a bit further away from where the center of our life uh, normally took place. We moved out of, of close driving range to our school and to our work. But it was my parents' first home, or first opportunity to own a home. It was a big home. There was room for all of us. It was quite a nice house. We had a yard. We had things that we had not had before. But it was a move that my dad later tells me, I was just a kid and I didn't realize this at a time, but it was a move my dad tells me that, that compromised the health of our family. He says we had more of what the world would say we want, a bigger house, a nicer house, a bigger yard, a nicer yard, but it was a regret of my dad's because of the financial strain he said it, he put, it put on he and my mom and thus on their marriage and thus on their relationship with their kids. He said we were more physically comfortable within the world, but emotionally, your mom and I were in much turmoil. This is what my dad has told me. He's told me this, that he told me that, that in the context of this move, he never once asked God what they should do. It was a better opportunity by the standards that the world has set and that he had set. But he never paused to say, God, is this really where you want me to live? And he says that became one of the greatest uh, regrets in his life due to the pressure it put on their marriage and on our home life and the relationship with the kids. Where does God want us? Do we ask God, where does he want us? I could see this being a regret that was in the life of Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and others, family, and, and, and others kept their families in this land that they all thought they needed. And it was a land in which there was a king, a king that isn't exactly Prince Charming, a king who had discarded with one wife because she would not come before he and his friends and dance and do as he desired. And so his counselors came to him and he said, what should I do with my wife Vashti? And so his counselors came to him and he said, in order to make sure that we keep all the women of the land in check, Let's make sure we do something with Vashti. Now, men, let me just say, anytime anyone says to you, we need to figure out a way to keep the women in check, don't listen to them. This is a bad, bad counsel. But Mordecai thinks, oh, this is wise. I'm going to put my, my wife in check, and then we'll make sure that we have peace amongst the women in the land. Not a good move. Well, Mordecai does that, he sends Vashti away. But in time, the Bible tells us that, that, that Mordecai becomes lonesome. And so he has a type of beauty pageant, a type of beauty pageant. This isn't the type of beauty pageant that is revealed in your children's storybooks, I am sorry to say. 
The women were not lined up and paraded before the king and chose based on just their beauty or chose based on the composure that they had as they stood before the king. Women from all over the land were actually brought to a part of the palace. He, he rounded up all the virgins of the land, were brought to a part of the palace, and for 12 months, they were prepared. They went through, through, through training and through ceremonies in order to meet the king. For 12 months, they had to be prepared to meet the king. We learn in the Bible that Esther was one of these women and again, to show the secular nature of her world, her, her lack of commitment along with Mordecai's to their faith, we read in verse 10 of chapter 2. Verse 10 of chapter 2, the book of Esther. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now, of course, we recognize that she was under the pressure of another individual. But let's face it, some of the greatest regrets we have in our life are not because of the decisions that we made, but the decisions that others made on our behalf. But Esther is in this position, and there in this moment, the Bible tells us that she did not make known her, her people or her kindred. In other words, those that were around her did not know that she was a Jewish faith. What this would mean is that, that Esther denied things in her life that she knew to be right, her dietary laws. Think of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. One of the very first signs of Daniel's faith and Daniel's trust in God is what? What he eats. He's faithful to the laws of God that tell him to, to eat certain things in his diet. But here we see Esther, that no one knows what she, what, who she is, is an indication that she did not participate in these dietary uh, practices. We also would assume then because no one knows who she is or what faith she is uh, a part of, that, that she did not participate in the ceremonies and the, and the services that honored her God, her one true God. We know also, we would say, since no one even knows of what faith she is, that, that surely then she did not speak of her faith. She did not proclaim her faith. She was living in denial of who she really is. To live in denial of who you are, to try and hide and what to try and hide what you are, is another regret that I would see. Think of the story of Peter the disciple. In the New Testament, the story of Peter the disciple. When Jesus was on trial for uh, uh, being prepared to be put to death, three times people came to Peter and asked him if he was associated with Jesus. And the Bible tells us that, that three times Peter said no. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus looked upon Peter and suddenly regret, grief, overwhelmed Peter. And he ran out of the courtyard. And the Bible tells us that Peter wept bitterly. He was full of regret for living in denial of who he really of. It really was. Some of us know what it feels like to live in denial of who we really are and what we know to be true. Some of us have certain moral convictions in our hearts. We know them to be true. We know that we should be living by those convictions, but we are living in denial to those convictions. We don't want to be seen as different. We don't want to rock the boat in the workplace. We don't want to we, we, we want to keep the peace in the family, and so we just kind of bury who we are and what we are about. We don't want to deny our kids certain things, and so we say, you know what? Maybe if I just compromise in this way and say it's okay, then that is fine. All the while, we are de living in denial of who we really are and what we know 
to be true. And it eats us up inside. Those of us who have had those moments and who have lived in that way, you know what it feels like to live in denial of who you really are. How is Esther feeling? We don't truly know, but we do know she was hiding who she was. And for those of us who have done such things, we know how much that can hurt inside of us. But the story continues. Esther and the other women are not eventually brought before the king in a kind of group. They don't recite poetry or sing a song. There is no evening gown competition. There is no uh, questions about, about how much they know, their knowledge on current events. No one's asking them, what do you think of the latest election? This is not that kind of beauty pageant. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Verse 14. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. I think we can see that the author uses enough innuendo in this passage to help us to understand what this beauty pageant was really all about. I apologize if I just ruined some of your childhood stories that you read. The fairy tale of the queen who was so elegant and, and full of confidence that she won the heart of a king with just a quick glance and a bright smile. The text continues in, in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Folks, we see here, because there is nothing else in the text to dissuade us otherwise, we see here who, what we see here is a woman who was put through a very degrading situation. And whether by force or by choice, we don't fully know, compromised the moral law of God. Another regret. She spent the, man, the night with a man trying to win his favor. That's what those 12 months of preparation were for. It's how can I win the favor of the king when I spend my night with him? She then married the king, a marriage that was forbidden by her holy book, the Torah, which is our Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 3, speaking of Jews intermarrying with Gentiles, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Now we should be sure to recognize this and we should 
acknowledge this, that Esther's situation was no simple case of, of fornication and therefore it does not allow a simple judgment on our behalf. I'm not here to judge Esther. But what I do see over and over again in her life are many instances that could lead to levels of great regret. Living in a place she should probably not be living. Denying the faith that she should not be denying. Having to participate, whether by choice or by force, in, in activities that, that, that compromise who she is and what she knows to be right. When really behind the scenes, all of these things would lead to regret. I believe Esther's story is the perfect story for us to look at in our society. It is a story that we have been taught projects this perfect idyllic image that everything is okay. When really behind the scenes, there are many things that are happening that could lead us to live with deep regrets. Esther's story has been portrayed as a perfect girl who is the recipient of, of a fairy tale story that, that in a moment of crisis saves God's people with perfect courage. When really Esther's story is a story of a woman living where she isn't supposed to be living, hiding who she really is, subject to the cultural demands against women of the day, learning how to use her body to gain the favor of a man, being one of many women in a gentleman's life, or not a gentleman, but in a man's life, compromising the moral values of her religion, who in a moment of crisis seems to remember where help can really be found. The story continues. The story continues. And it tells us about a man named Haman. Haman was part of the king's cabinet, her husband's cabinet. And he had a vendetta. He had a vendetta primarily against Esther's uh, relative, Mordecai. And thus, to carry out this vendetta, he proposes to the king the destruction of all the Jewish people, to kill them all. Well, we see once again that who Esther was married to was no Prince Charming because the king agrees to help Haman out in his vendetta and says, go ahead, kill all the Jews. And that is when Esther, the queen, is asked to step in. She's asked to step in. Not because of her high moral virtue or because she has exhibited great wisdom or because she is in such favor with the king. In fact, the book of Esther tells us when she is asked to intervene on behalf of God's people at the time of the Jews, for, on behalf of the Jews, that she doesn't even know if she'll be accepted into his presence. Look at Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. All the king's servants, this is Esther responding. Mordecai has said, go in, you must go in to see the king to save the people, your people. And in Esther chapter 4 and verse 11, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, this is Esther speaking, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther says, I haven't even seen my husband. I haven't even been invited into his presence for 30 days. 
Esther's story is not the story of a hero woman. It is the story of a flawed and scarred woman who, through, who though has who who though has lived who has lived a life full of mistakes. In this moment, in this moment, when God's people are at risk and her husband is pleading for her to do something, in fact, we see in the Bible that he even bullies her a bit into it. Mordecai says to her, "Don't think you're safe inside the palace." Don't think you're safe in there because they'll eventually find out that you're a Jew too and you'll be lost as well. And God, he doesn't say God, he says, and another will be raised up. He's bullying her into doing this. And so Esther replies in Esther chapter 4 and verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast. In this moment, we see that Esther is going back to her religious roots. A fast is clearly a, a religious moment. We know that fasting and prayer are, are closely interconnected, as Pastor Andrea preached a few weeks ago about this. She says, hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. If you read the rest of the book of Esther, or you remember from your childhood lessons, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, his plot is exposed. He is punished, and the Jewish people are saved. But it's not because there was a perfect woman with perfect wisdom and perfect faith and perfect courage. It was because a flawed human being with a sordid history, living in denial of her faith, in a crisis, did the only thing that will save any of us. She turned to the God of heaven. And God did not hesitate to respond to her. He reveals the plan of Haman. He shows her favor with the king, and Esther and the people are spared. You see, I like the story of Esther more than I did as a child. When I was a child, it was a beauty pageant, and it was, oh, everything is idyllic, and everything is great, and everything is wonderful, and, 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 and all things will work out okay, just as they are. But as an adult, I realized that the story of Esther is much more closer to my reality. Someone that is full of regrets. Someone that, that struggles in this world and, and, and in this life. Someone that, that in their deepest, darkest moment realizes the only way to not perish, the only way to be saved is to call upon the name of the Lord God Almighty. And I praise God because then what I see in this story is not that, that a people are saved because there's a queen with great courage. Not because people are saved because there's this, this woman that was just perfect in all her ways and her character was perfect. I don't see that, that God saved his people because of somewhat, some human's perfection. I see a people who are saved because of God's goodness. Because there is a God that does not measure our past and ponder, well, they've done this and they've done this and they live here and they do this. You know, that really stacks up against them. So maybe I won't help them. 
No, the story of Esther is, here is your bucket full of regrets. And you've turned to me, and that's enough. And I will deliver you. And I will save you. The God of the universe, through his son Jesus, has made it possible that in a moment, the snap of a finger can deliver you and me from our past regrets and our current strugglings. Not because we are worthy, but because we have realized, like Esther, it is the only place to turn in which to find the salvation of God. If you are here today with regrets from the past, if you are here today and you've been making new regrets in your present, if you're here today and you've been living in some form or some area of your life in denial of God, God wants us to know, I believe, through the story of Esther, that right now, today, in this moment, he will take all of that away. He will hear your plea and he will save you just as you are. You're flawed, your life is a sordid history, you've been living in denial of your faith, let God change all of that for you right here and right now. What a God we serve. The scripture that Georgia read today says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, and she is, a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. All things new. That's not a process. That's not a journey. That's in the moment we recognize, I don't want to live with these regrets anymore. We turn to God and he says, done and done. In your bulletins today, you should have received a connection card. And I just want to invite you to pull those out for just a moment and turn there to the back. And maybe there is someone who is here today who says, man, that is me. I've been living in denial of who I am. I've been living with regrets. I've been living with, with fear of being found out for my regrets. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been living as a Christian and no one knows it. It's all perfect on the outside. It's a fairy tale on the outside. But you know in your heart that you've been living in opposition to God. If that's you, I just, right there on, yes, I'd like to, right there, begin a relationship with Jesus. If it's a new relationship, you can write new. If it's a recommitment, you can write new commitment. But we want to be able to pray for you. If you have some prayer requests, if there's something going on in your life that you want us to pray over, to pray that God will give you freedom from something in your life, then write that on your card. If there's some struggle in your family or in your, in your work, write that on your card, and we want to be able to pray for you that God will give you that victory. Not because you're perfect with perfect courage or perfect faith, but because he is perfect. And when the imperfect turn to him, he always answers, done and done. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for the story of Esther that shows an imperfect and a flawed individual just like us. Who not in a great moment of courage, but in a great moment of desperation, turned to you. And though she was imperfect, though we were imperfect, 
you bring deliverance immediately. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.